Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Watching this right now, you already know we're doing something a little bit different this morning. So instead of streaming like we usually do from inside of our office studio, which is right here, we are coming to you live from the backyard. And as you can see, again, if you're watching, it's not much to look at. If you're watching or listening to this on the podcast, let me describe the scene for you. So we've got kind of an older house. I believe it was built in the 60s um, here in South Austin. It needs some siding work. It needs some work on the fascia boards. Um, it's got a little concrete pad here on the back that I guess you could call a patio. It may be a little bit of a stretch to call it a patio. It's a little bit cracked and kind of all over the place. Um, we did get some mowers and stuff out here and clean up all the brush. If you were actually with us um, when we first moved into this office, which I think was like almost two years ago now, uh, right over here to my left was a big burned out shed that we had to clear out. Some of you guys came over and um, you helped uh, fix all this place up, do the paint on the inside. Um, and it's really become like a second home to us. It's been come like a primary home uh, during COVID as we haven't been able to be at Lively Middle School. But regardless of whether you're watching this right now or you're listening to it later, by now I'm sure you're just asking why, right? Why did we leave our little studio and host our gathering in the backyard? Well, we chose to go outside this morning because going out is the central theme of this new series that we're starting today called Therefore Go. Therefore Go. You see, after Jesus rose from the grave, but right before he ascended into heaven, he gave us something that has now become called the Great Commission. Here's what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And with these words, Jesus left his followers then and now with very specific instructions on how we should live our lives. So over the next five weeks, we're going to break down this great commission phrase by phrase, and we are going to do so outside. Three of those weeks will be live streamed from here in the backyard, and the other two will be all together at our outdoor gatherings at Lively Middle School. The next one is next Sunday, one week from right now. Then we've got another one on June 6th. We'll be at the football field at Lively Middle School, 10 a.m. It's going to be awesome. I hope to see you there. I hope you're making plans to join us each week because this setting and this series are intended to serve as constant reminders that this great commission involves movement. Jesus actually structured the Great Commission in such a way that the mandate, the calling to go, is intrinsic to every other mandate that is listed. He says that we are supposed to go and make disciples, go and baptize, go and teach. Now, I need a quick caveat here. Don't confuse this with a call for every follower of Jesus to move across the world or even move across town. In my opinion, we've often become too quick to assume that God's call for our lives is somewhere other than where he's placed us right now. In other words, 
Only some of us have been called to move, but all of us have been called to movement. Only some of us have been called to move, whether it's across town or across the country, but all of us have been called to movement. Because following Jesus is anything but passive. Too often, we have made Christianity and being a Christian about like an intellectual assent to a set of beliefs. When in reality, it is so much more than that. I love how Pastor Aaron Nequist puts it. He says, Jesus didn't say, here's the truth, just believe in it. He said, I am the truth, follow me. It's an invitation of participation. Following Jesus is an invitation of participation in the Great Commission is this call to movement. And here is what I find to be the most incredible thing about it. Our individual movements come together and they create a collective movement. This small group of folks who first heard the Great Commission from the mouth of Jesus, they were mobilized to movement. Even under the threat of imprisonment and death, they stood up and proclaimed the good news of Jesus to a crowded street on Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit came down. And when they did, after Jesus sent his Holy Spirit, that very day, y'all, the church was born. And on the first day, it grew from 120 to over 3,000 people. And it kept growing exponentially over the next 250 years. Think about it like this, y'all. Even with the two most powerful entities in that part of the world at the time, the Roman government and the Jewish religious leadership, even with both of them collaborating to persecute and kill every follower of Jesus they could, by the year 300, historians estimate there were over 6 million Christians. Even with all the odds stacked against them. They went from 120 to 3,000 to 6 million. Today, there are about 2.4 billion, with a B, Christians. We are gathered together as a church right now because 2,000 years ago, Jesus told a small group of people to go, and they went. Now, we certainly have our flaws as church and even some really major issues. I've talked about them at length, even from right here. But the church is still the single greatest movement that the world has ever seen. How did this happen? Well, I think it's fairly simple. At its best, you see, the church is focused on this great commission. At our best, we are committed to sharing the love of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. In his excellent book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey says it like this, the church is where God lives. What Jesus brought to a few, that is healing, grace, the good news, message of God's love, the church can now bring to all. That was the challenge or great commission that Jesus gave just before vanishing from the numbed disciples' sight. What Jesus was able to do to a few, bring healing and grace and love, unconditional love, we as the church can now do to all. What Jesus brought to a few, the church can now bring to all. This, y'all, is the essence of the Great Commission. So as I said, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at this Great Commission and talking about what it looks like for us to be full participants in this movement. Remember, it's an invitation of participation. 
Next Sunday, during our outdoor gathering at Lively, we're going to look at the first part of this Great Commission, the part where Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. I think we usually kind of skim by this statement, but it is radical, and it actually has huge implications for us today. Jesus is basically saying, everything you've ever heard about religion, about God, about all of that stuff, all of the authority has been given to me. So what I tell you, that's what God is telling you. What I reveal to you, that is what God reveals to you. I am the ultimate revelation, the ultimate authority. So we're going to talk about what that means next week. But with the rest of our time together this morning, I want to talk about the often overlooked sentences right before Jesus lays out his great commission. Because I actually believe this little preamble is the key to combating one of the most pervasive reasons Christians don't join in on this movement. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Matthew says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, and that's when he gives the great commission. But I want to focus in on that little phrase, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, I had actually never noticed this little phrase before studying for this week's message. Between growing up in church, Christian camps, going to seminary, and pastoring, I bet I've read the Great Commission passage at least a thousand times, and I've never once noticed that sentence. It's never really struck me. I've just read it and gone by it. Right before Jesus says some of his most famous words, Matthew lets us know pointedly and purposefully that when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. And that's all there is. Matthew gives us no explanation or interpretation, just a simple factual statement. They worshiped, but some doubted. Now, scholars are divided on what exactly this phrase means. Some believe there had to be like another group with the 11 there, and that the 11 worshiped, but some, the other group, doubted. And there was this distinction between the 11 worshiping and the others who were doubting. Other scholars think the group of 11 was somehow split up. Some of them worshiped and didn't doubt, while others of them doubted and didn't worship. But actually, I think the correct interpretation is the simplest. They all worshiped Jesus, and some of them also doubted. They all worshiped Jesus. Everyone that saw him worshiped him, but some of them also simultaneously doubted. Because here's the thing. Doubt and worship are not mutually exclusive. I need to say that again. Some of y'all really need that. Doubt and worship are not mutually exclusive. My favorite translation of this verse, and the one I think to be the truest of the author's intent, is actually found in the Good News Bible. By the way, if you're looking for a great tan- translation that kind of re-engages Scripture in more of a modern way, uh, I highly recommend the Good News Bible. So here is how the Good News Bible renders Matthew 28:17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, even though some of them doubted. Even though some of them doubted, they chose to worship Now, we don't know exactly why they doubted, but in some ways, I think that makes this passage even more powerful. Because if you think about it, their doubts were probably as unique as they were, just as our doubts are as unique as we are. But even though some of them doubted, they worshiped. Even though some were afraid, 
they worshiped. Even though some were anxious about what was to come, they worshiped. Even though they didn't fully understand what was happening, they chose to worship. Now, you may or may not know that the Bible's New Testament was originally written in the language of Koine Greek or old ancient Greek. Now, I try not to drop the whole in the original language thing on y'all very often because I know it can be kind of annoying, but this one is pretty cool. It's pretty illuminating, I think, for what we're talking about. The Greek word for doubt is distazo, and it's a compound word. It's a combination of two Greek words, dis meaning two or double, and stasis meaning stance. So it means to hold two things simultaneously. It means to have a double stance, to stand in two places at the same time. The only other time this word is used in the entire Bible is in this book when Matthew tells the story of Jesus walking on water. Now, if you don't remember that story, it happens right after Jesus multiplies the five loaves and the two fish and he feeds the 5,000 people. Actually, it's 5,000 men. It's probably more like 20,000 people, including women and children. He fed all of them. They ended up with 12 baskets of food left over. It's one of Jesus' greatest miracles. Well, right after that, the disciples get into a boat and they start making their way across the sea while Jesus takes some time to kind of be alone and pray like he often did. Now, not long after they set sail, the disciples are hit with a storm. The wind and the waves are tossing their little boat around and they are afraid. Jesus, from on the shore, he sees this happening and he begins walking out to them on the surface of the water. Now, at first, they think he's a ghost. Right? They're like, oh my gosh, a ghost is walking toward us. But then Jesus says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And then Peter responds by saying, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Jesus tells Peter to come. And so Peter gets up out of the boat in the middle of a storm and begins walking on the water toward Jesus. But then... If you remember the story, he kind of starts to notice the wind and the waves around him. He, he sees everything crashing at his feet and he becomes afraid. He cries out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches out his hand and catches Peter before he sinks down. And then Jesus says something truly amazing to Peter. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you distazo, Peter, is exactly how it's written. Why were you holding on to a little faith and a little doubt at the same time? Notice Jesus doesn't say, where is your faith? Or why don't you have any faith? He says, you have little faith. And remember, this is the same Jesus who said, a little bit of faith, even as small as a mustard seed, can move mountains. So remember, distazo means holding two things in tension. Peter held faith and doubt in tension as he walked on the water. Peter held obedience, the call to step out in faith and doubt, intention, as he walked on the water. And then as he was out on the water being pummeled by the wind and the waves, Peter's doubt became too much for him. So overwhelmed by his doubt, he begins to let go of his, his faith and cries out for help. And what happens? Jesus is right there to catch him with an outstretched arm. Y'all, what a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Jesus calls us to go, to step out in faith, be a part of this movement, which can sometimes feel as uncertain as walking on water. And during this great adventure of following him, there will be times where we hold our faith in tension 
with our doubts and our fears. And there will certainly be times when our doubt and fears overwhelm us, but Jesus will always be there with outstretched arms ready to catch us when we fall. These two stories show us that doubt is not mutually exclusive with worship, with obedience, or with faith. If they were, the ever-present realities of doubt and uncertainty in our broken world would mean that most of us would be totally incapable of worship and obedience and faith. You see, thankfully, Jesus isn't asking us to overcome all of our doubts before we follow him. He isn't asking us to shed all our uncertainties before we live out this great commission, before we go out on this adventure. Jesus is asking us to step out in faithful obedience, even though we will inevitably feel doubtful and uncertain. He is asking us to place our whole selves, our whole lives in his outstretched arms because he's trustworthy, because he always comes through. Bible scholar Pete Enns wrote a great little book a couple of years ago called The Sin of Certainty. And in it, he works through the biblical narrative exploring how God's desire for humanity is not absolute certainty about everything we believe. Instead, God's desire is for us to entrust our whole lives to him, even in the midst of uncertainty. In his book, Pete says, doubt is not the enemy of faith, a solely destructive force that rips us away from God, a dark cloud that blocks the bright, warm sun of faith. No, doubt is only the enemy of faith when we equate doubt with certainty in our thinking. The life of Christian faith is more than agreeing with a set of beliefs about Christ, morality, or how to read the Bible. It means being so intimately connected to Christ that his crucifixion is ours. His death is our death and his life is our life. My friends, doubt and worship are not mutually exclusive. Doubt and obedience are not mutually exclusive. Doubt and faith are not mutually exclusive. Doubt and living the Christian life that Jesus has called you to live is not mutually exclusive. I believe One of the most insidious schemes of Satan is convincing Christians that any presence of doubt in our lives means we can't possibly be following Jesus. And tragically, many pastors and churches are perpetuating this lie by reaffirming that same message. I'm just going to be real. You are crazy if you think Peter had no doubts or uncertainties when he stepped out of the boat and onto the water. You are crazy if you think the disciples had no doubts or uncertainties when they heard the great commission from the resurrected Jesus and then watched him ascend into heaven. Not only do scriptures clearly say they did, you and I both know that anyone would have some doubts and uncertainties in those situations. But even in the midst of doubts and uncertainties, they chose faith, they chose obedience. And they chose to worship. Please, please don't let doubt keep you from stepping out in faith and following Jesus in his great commission. We don't have to be ruled by our uncertainty. It's a normal part of human life. And the best news is that even when our doubts feel like they've become overwhelming, Jesus is there to catch us when we fall. The Christian faith is about trusting our whole lives to Jesus. 
and allowing his spirit to lead us and to live through us as we go, as we go out on this great commission journey with him. Despite their doubts and uncertainties, this is exactly what the folks in our story did. Remember, we, me and you, we are here right now because Jesus told them to go and they went. So go outside, not just outside of your house, but but outside of your comfort zone. Stop letting the inevitability of doubt and uncertainty sideline you. Lean in to this grand adventure of following Jesus. He's not calling you to just intellectually assent to a doctrinal statement. Like Aaron said, it's an invitation of participation. Like Pete said, he is calling you to be so intimately connected to him that his life is your life. So over the next few weeks, we'll break down all this great commission entails. So make plans to join us for our outdoor gathering next Sunday on the football field at Lively Middle School and for the whole rest of this series. Because we are not meant to be alone in this journey. This is a movement. It's a movement that we all get to be a part of. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this beautiful Great Commission, but but also for these couple of sentences from Matthew right before. These sentences that let us know that we don't have to be sidelined by our doubt or uncertainty. We don't have to be sidelined when we don't know exactly what the outcome is because you say we never actually will. That we might not know exactly what's going to happen or exactly how it's going to go down, but we can trust that you do and that you are worthy of following. You are worthy of going outside for So we pray, God, that as we are empowered by your Holy Spirit, as your life becomes our life, that we would move. We would be a part of going in this great commission. That we would stand in the footsteps, that we would sit on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Greatest movement in the history of the world. And we would be a part of doing what the church was always supposed to do, bringing your grace and hope and love to all people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.